both the church's fast and feast, and we um, celebrated the Feast of the Apostles in that period of time in Pentecost. Of course, our focus was on the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and the work of the Holy Spirit among the disciples. And uh, we, could, we could sort of um, summarize the theme of the month of the Eve as um, speaking about the qualities of discipleship and the support that Christ gives to his disciples, informing them with the necessary qualities. And so this month, as we saw last week, about the uh, theme of trust and dependence on the Lord as they went out in the mission field. Um, and today, there's a beautiful uh, lesson that the Lord gives to the disciples and to each one of us about childhood, about humility, and about uh, not seeking uh, a place of preeminence among our brethren and uh, sort of worldly power and ambition. So there's a there's a one of the saints uh, told uh, what we call the tale of the four donkeys. So he said that a man who owned four donkeys for the purpose of carrying his load, he said one of the donkeys he loaded with gold, another donkey he loaded with all of his famous books on philosophy, math, and science, another he loaded with all of his weapons, and the fourth one he loaded with all of the sacred objects that he had, vessels, vestments, uh, and, and relics from the church. So this rich man who had these four donkeys and who loaded them with these uh, loads on them, the donkeys as they're journeying began to communicate with one another. And the one who was carrying the gold began to boast about how rich he was. And the one who was carrying the, the books of philosophy and science and math began to boast about how intelligent he was. And the one who was carrying the weapons, of course, boasted about his bravery and his might, and the last one carrying the sacred vessels of the church boasted about his holiness. Now, of course, this is a very ridiculous, not only uh, possibility of four donkeys speaking to one another, but it's a ridiculous conversation to be had, because for us, as we hear this tale of the four donkeys, it's obvious to us what is taking place, that they have attributed to themselves, they have usurped what belongs to the owner, themselves. As ridiculous as it sounds, this is exactly what I do, and this is exactly what many of us do with the gifts of God and with the grace that He bestows upon us in our life. We usurp those um, talents and those graces and those um, blessings in our life, and we attribute them to ourselves and to our own strength and to our own holiness and to our own um, intelligence. And, and this is how that seed or that, um, that vice of pride and arrogance begins to grow within us. So this was the problem that Christ had to root out of his disciples. And he, like a surgeon, he begins to excise the, the cancer from within. And if we are, each one of us, serious about our spiritual life, we will also be pleased that Christ would do the same surgical work on our heart. As painful as it is, because sometimes there's no anesthesia, and so we feel the, the open wounds, it is necessary for us, if we want to follow the path of the disciples, to allow him to produce in us this humility. So, the Gospel today is taken from um, Matthew, um, Chapter 19, 
or 18, sorry. And I want to start actually with just jumping a little bit ahead in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, there is the case of the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. The mother of the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to the Lord and said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left of the kingdom. And the Bible says, the scriptures tell us that the ten others, when they heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two. Now, why were they displeased? Of course, again, the request of the mother of the two sons of Zebedee uh, is a little bit ambitious. Right? She wants her two sons to be granted a sort of place of preeminence among the others in the kingdom of God. But why were the others displeased? Were they displeased because of the request? The fathers of the church tell us that they were displeased because they were worried that it would be granted. They were displeased not so much that it was asked, but it was they were displeased because they were worried that the Lord would grant the request of the mother of the two sons of Zebedee. So in that passage, when Jesus, when the ten were displeased, Jesus called them to himself and said, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So, it's interesting because uh, we're going to start with chapter 20 in Matthew, we're going to go back to chapter 18, but there's a recurring theme, unfortunately in the life of the disciples. And there's a recurring theme, unfortunately, in my heart, and perhaps in your heart, of this desire for ambitious glory and power and, and, and position of preeminence that, again, has to be rooted out if we want to be true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself became a slave of no reputation for us and for our salvation. Interestingly, uh, and this is what always sort of boggles my mind think about this topic, is that after all of the time that they spent with the Lord, the disciples on the night of the Last Supper are still arguing about the same question. St. Luke tells us in, in the 22nd chapter of his Gospel, says, now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. It's really easy for us to judge the disciples that and say to them, hey, come on guys, like, Three years you've been with the Lord, you've listened to him teach, you've seen the miracles, you've seen how humble and meek and gentle he is, you've seen how many times he's reprimanded you for, for asking these kinds of questions. And here we are in one of the most sacred days of the, of the, the cycle of, of salvation history. And what are you talking about? You're talking about which of you is the greatest. Now, again, it's very easy for us to judge them, but if we're honest with ourselves, we might find that this question is stirring within us even if we're not willing to admit or speak it out loud as they did among themselves. So let's go back now to Matthew 18 because the Gospel says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? At what time? Well, we have to go back to what happened just before Matthew 18. What happened just before Matthew 18 was that, again, some of the religious leaders of the Jewish synagogue and, and the temple, they tried to trap the Lord Jesus Christ and accuse him of something. So they went to the disciples and asked, hey, does your master pay the temple tax? 
The temple tax was apparently this tax that was paid by every Jewish family uh, on behalf of every male over the age of 12. And it was used for the expenses of the temple, for the upkeep of the temple and the services and the sacrifices and so on. So they wanted to ask, hey, is your, is your master, is he going to pay the temple tax or is he going to place himself above it? So um, Jesus told Peter, of course, see, there's, a, there's a beautiful passage there where, where the Lord explains why the sons should not be, should have to give, pay this tax. But then he says, nonetheless, so we don't offend them. So they don't have an accusation against us. The Lord tells Peter, he says, go to the sea and cast your, your, your hook. And you will catch a fish. And, and when you open up the, the, the fish, you will find the, the money, the, the coins necessary to pay for yourself and for me. So, so the Lord says, look, go and get the money and pay them the temple tax so that we don't offend them. But he said, go and get it from this, in this miraculous way, and it will be enough to cover the two of us. So the other disciples were, again, you know, a bit jealous or envious. Why is the Lord singling out Peter? Why is the Lord sort of joining himself in this way with Peter. What about the rest of us? Is Peter more important than us? Is Peter greater than us? So it seems that they must have had a side conversation about this, and they said, let's go and talk to the Lord. And so they came and says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So we, we, we see the context is, 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 is quite important for us to understand what's happening. Um, so what did Christ do? Christ responded not by answering them. He does speak to them, but, but his response is, is, is something very dramatic. He brings a child and places the child in the midst of them. And this is what he does. He brings the child and he says, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. So, the answer, the, the, uh, the anecdote to, uh, the antidote to the, the problem of the disciples is the humility of a child who is placed as the example, the exemplar of discipleship. So, what is the Lord doing? Again, like a, like a very careful surgeon or like a gardener, he begins to weed out from the disciples the poisons and the, the things that are toxic to their well-being. Now, it must have been a shock, because we know in those days, whether we today, with our sensibilities, we are shocked by it or not, I'm sure most of us would be, in those days, of course, women and children had no legal rights. So, a child was, was, was essentially, you know, considered the, the least of importance in terms of the societal, you know, uh, hierarchy or race. So for the Lord to bring the child and place him in the middle of the disciples was a bit of a shock, not for them only, but for those who were around witnessing and listening to what was taking place. So, Jesus, again, 
he doesn't answer their question at the level that they're asking it. He doesn't engage in a discussion or a debate. It's not a philosophical question of how to be the greatest, but it's an example. It's an example of a simple, humble child. And he does something very powerful in their lives and in our lives. He takes somebody who is at the sort of the periphery, right? Or somebody who's sort of outside of the circle of importance. Or outside, we can say, even the circle of the club. And he makes him an example for those who are on the inside. Right? Many times in my life, the Lord will send me somebody who's not a priest to help me to be a better priest. Or he will send somebody who's not a Christian to help me be a better Christian. Perhaps he will send even an enemy of the faith in order for me to see something in that person that I need to emulate. The Lord, is, his, his way of working with us is such that He will humble us by bringing somebody who is outside of that circle of importance or that rank or that sense of being on the inside of a club or whatever you, however you want to call it. And He will humble us by showing that they have greater virtue than us. And this is what he does. He shows them that as much as you are, and last week we heard that the disciples cast out demons in the name of Christ. They were wonder workers. They were raising the dead. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. And in all of that, Jesus brings a child and says, you need to learn how to be a better Christian, how to inherit the kingdom of God properly by looking at the child. So each of us, our eyes should be open to whoever the Lord sends our way. It could be a neighbor, it could be a co-worker, it could be somebody in the church, it could be somebody outside of the church, it could be somebody from a different religion, it could be somebody who is your enemy. And yet the Lord will ask you to pay attention to see what He wants you to learn from that person. So, the... Um, the interesting way that sort of Christ speaks about emulating the, the child is he uses the word conversion. Right? He says, unless you are converted, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, there's this sort of dichotomy. On the one hand, their, their question is, who is the greatest? Who is is sort of a, a state that is static. Who, who right now is the greatest? But what he says to them is not who is the greatest, but how to become great in the kingdom of God. How, and so when he says be converted, he's talking about a process. And this process is a long and painful process. It might, we might think that uh, sort of the Lord is, is giving us this example of this simple, naive child, uh, sort of silly person, um, and says, oh, this is the greatest. But in reality, for us to become a child is the most difficult work as adults. We, we naturally have those qualities of, 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 of childlike humility and lack of ambition and preeminence and... Uh, 
forgiveness and simplicity, but we lose it. As we mature in life, as the passions begin to take greater and greater root in our lives, we lose that childlike stance before God. Elder Paisus, he said uh, something very beautiful. He says, children always see the gar their guardian angel. Children see angels and saints. But the Lord, in his uh, providence, makes them forget those things that they have seen so that when they're older, they don't fall into pride. I think many of us have had experiences of our children who spoke to us or said something to us about something they saw. But it's interesting that other Paisu sort of links this ability with a pure heart to see divine things, but also the necessity to forget them because of maturity. Maturity sort of poisons us, and, and pride begins to take root. So when Christ says, be converted, he's talking about a painful death that takes place every day. It's not a passivity. It's not something we just step back and say, you know, I'll be childlike, I'll be simple and naive. But it's something that we achieve, again, through the proper way of understanding holiness. And it means that we have to yield. We have to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have to yield to the surgeon. We have to uh, yield to, um, to allow him to work with precision without ruining his work by sort of floundering and, and ruining um, his precision in, in, in rooting out these things in our lives. So I want to just maybe end with a couple of maxims, a couple of short sayings about humility for us to take away in a story, again, about public Paisus that I think is a very powerful example of humility. Um, the first maxim is that no saint, there is no saint who doesn't consider himself the greatest sinner. By simply knowing that we are men and women, we should have the realization that we are capable of committing every evil and every sin in the world. If today you and I are preserved from some grave sin of murder or adultery or theft or whatever grave sin we can think of, it is only by the grace of God. It is not by your merit or my merit not by your strength or my strength, because if God were to withdraw his grace from us for a moment, we would fall into the lowest depths of sin. We would be capable of everything that we look at others on the news and say, how could somebody do that? The reality is that each one of us is that somebody who could do that. And so every saint comes to this realization that they are, without the grace of God, the worst sinner. Number two, to recognize that we are full of pride is the beginning of humility. And the thought that we are humble is the beginning of pride. Our prayer should continuously be, Lord, grant that I may be humble, but that I may not know that I am humble. Grant that I may be humble, but that I may not know that I am humble. But that I always have that sense that I have this pride that I have to root out of my heart or allow the Lord to root out of my heart. The third one is one degree of humility is more precious than thousands of revelations and ecstasies, the saints tell us. Perhaps it's more exciting for us to desire to see or experience spiritual manifestations, 
But again, the saints are very clear and unanimous that one degree of humility is much more important than a thousand revelations or ecstasies. Number four, God will often permit the soul to fall into the sin of the senses so that it may be healed of the sin of pride. In other words, oftentimes when we struggle against certain weaknesses of the flesh or of the senses or of our thoughts, we ask, why, Lord, have you not taken this thorn away from me? Why have I prayed and fasted and went to confession on this over and over again and it remains? And the answer the saints tell us is that perhaps the Lord knows in His love and in His wisdom that if He were to remove this sin and give you the grace and the power to overcome it, that you would be led to self-righteousness and pride, which is much more dangerous. And so He allows you to fall as long as it produces humility. And this is the goodness of God in that He allows the very sins to become means of our own sanctification. St. Gregory Misa says, a cartload of sins led by humility will take you to paradise. But a cartload of good deeds led by self-righteousness will take you to hell. So which one do you want? Which one do I want? I think we would rather choose a cartload of sins led by humility. So if I keep struggling, except I don't, I don't say we give up struggling, I don't say we give up repentance and confession, but I say that we be patient with the Lord who is working in us to produce another virtue as we struggle with this sin, which is a virtue of humility. The fifth one is humility leads to prayer. A humble person is a poor person, is a beggar, is one who feels that he is naked and cold and hungry and thirsty. And therefore, he doesn't need to be taught how to pray, but necessity teaches him how to pray. When the person, when we stand before God aware of our nakedness before him, we don't need to search for words. The words of the Lord have mercy will come from the depths. Lord save me. Or beautifully as we read in Psalm 118 in the, in the midnight hour, I am yours, Lord, save me. Or I am thine, save me. And that prayer will come from depths that we've never experienced before because it will be a real cry. Save me, Lord, I am truly drowning. I am truly on the precipice of destruction. And then last one, which will lead to the story I want to share with you about other praises, is that I often be grateful, this is a painful one, this is part of the pain of growing in humility. I ought to be grateful to anyone who helps me in keeping humility by humiliations. For although they have no intention of making us humble in a good way, but for in their own sinful way of perhaps destroying us, to take root in us if we accept it. So, somebody humiliates me. Perhaps they intend evil and they are judged by God. I have no say in that. But if I accept that humiliation as perhaps at times the severe hand of the Lord who in, in His love is trying to root something out in me and see that perhaps this is good, bitter medicine for me, then I ultimately will grow exponentially in humility by that kind of acceptance, that kind of yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit. So let me give you this beautiful example from El Paisius, uh, St. Paisius, the Greek Orthodox saint who was canonized recently um, in, our, in the last uh, uh, 10 years or so, and who uh, closed in the 1990s. And you've heard me speak of him many times. So 
I'm going to read in his own words what he, what he went through. So Elder Paisu said the following, he said, while I was at a certain monastery, there was a priest in the town who loved me very much from the time that I was still a layman. One Sunday, I went down to attend his church, which was filled with people. The moment I entered the sanctuary, as was my custom, I said to myself, Dear God, place all these people in paradise. As for me, place me in a little corner if you wish. Right. So he humbled himself as he entered the church, and he saw that everybody in the church was better than himself. And he said, Lord, give all of these people paradise. As for me, if you allow me just to be a corner, if it's your will. When the time came for Holy Communion, and although the priest had always given me Holy Communion inside the sanctuary, he turned to me and said aloud, Get out of the sanctuary and go to the end of the line to receive Holy Communion after everyone else because you are unworthy. He said, I went out without saying a word, and I stood outside reading the prayers before Holy Communion. Later, as I was placed in line to receive Holy Communion, last of all, I thought to myself, the priest was enlightened by God to reveal who I am to myself. He didn't rebuke the priest, he didn't say how ungrateful this priest is, he is, we've known each other since I was a layman, he's known me and loved me all these years, why is he treating me so bad, what did I do to him? He didn't justify any of these things, but he said, the priest was enlightened by God to reveal to me who I really am. Then he said, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the beast. The beast. As soon as I received Holy Communion, I felt a great sweetness within. When the Divine Liturgy was over, the priest, who was very distraught, approached me. So now the priest, for some reason, realizes the sin that he committed, and he comes to Elder Paisus very upset, and he says, Forgive me. How could I do that? I would not put my children or my wife or even myself before you. I do not know what came over me. He bowed down before me, asking for forgiveness and attempting to kiss my hand. I tried to reassure him, Father, don't worry, it was not your fault. I am at fault. God used you at that moment to put me to the test. The priest could not understand what I was telling him, and in the end it seems that it did not convince him. All of this had been brought on by the prayer that I had said. So, he prayed for humility, he prayed that everybody else be placed ahead of him in kingdom of God, and the Lord tested him. He allowed that this priest would sort of lose his senses for a moment and accuse him in such a, a, a dramatic and drastic way. And, of course, Elder Paisius, as a saint, he passed the test. And, and this is a, a great, I think, example of how many times we have those moments of being humiliated. Now, oftentimes we defend ourselves and, and we can justify that defense because the person is wrong, and they are indeed wrong. What the priest did was wrong. What somebody does to me at work is wrong. But God will judge them. God will deal with them. God will correct them in his own way. But if I allow to see the bigger picture of how God's providence works in all things, and how if I accept that small humiliation or large humiliation as best as I can, and see it as the hand of God working secretly to bring about something good in me, then I can have this beautiful experience of Brother Paisius, who when he approached the Holy Communion, he felt this beautiful sweetness. May the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his love for his disciples, gave them this very precious instruction about being childlike, may he also give us this grace and give us the strength and the fortitude and glory to him now that we're